Well, when I was a boy, I learned a little song. It's very simple, and yet the truth it communicates is profound. I don't know if I remember learning it in church or whether it was something my parents taught me. Some of you will know it. I'd like to sing it for you. I am so glad that my Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. You know, that's an amazing, wonderful truth. Jesus loves his people. Jesus cares for his people. In Isaiah 40, it was prophesied of him that the Lord God would come with might and he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. And Jesus did come. And he is the good shepherd. And on that cross, the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep to save them from their sins because he loves them. We Christians love Psalm 23 because it's such a wonderful picture of the ongoing shepherding care that Jesus has for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now here's a question for you. If you're in Christ, you know that Jesus loves you. And that he is committed to caring for you and providing for your needs. But how does he do that? How does he love you? I mean, you have a lot of needs. I have a lot of needs. As Jesus' sheep, we need to be fed and protected and loved and helped and guided and washed. We need to be comforted when we're struggling, healed when we are sick, brought back when we go astray. We even need wax sometimes when we're being particularly stubborn, don't we? How does Jesus do all of this for us? The answer, friends, the answer we get from the scripture is that he does it through the church. He provides all these things for us through 
his church. That's how he's chosen to set things up. Now, I wonder if that might be surprising to you, that Jesus would choose to shepherd us using the community of the church. It's not his plan for it to be just you and your Bible and the Holy Spirit within you. That's not the plan. But let's think about it for a minute. What is the church often called in Scripture? It's called the body of Christ. Which means that the church is, in a very real sense, the physical presence of our Lord Jesus in this world. You are one part of that body. And you need the other parts of the body, and they need you. Let's turn in our Bibles, please. I want you to see how Paul lays this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, which if you're using a blue Bible from the seats, that's on page 959. 1 Corinthians 12. While we turn, I'll also draw your attention. You may find it helpful today. There's a, a little guide in your bulletin to kind of lay out the sermon. You may find that helpful to keep yourself following. All right, 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to start reading in verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. First notice, by the way, that all three persons of the Godhead you see are active here, causing the church to function the way it should. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, the various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the Holy Spirit indwells us all, every believer, but gives to each one of us different gifts. What are we to use these gifts for? For our own edification? Not really. Not primarily. They're given to us so that we might use them for the common good, to edify one another. We need one another. Keep going, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, again, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
Nor again the feet, the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. So do you think that the saints at RGC don't need you? Think again. We do. We need what you provide. What God has empowered and enabled you by his spirit to provide. Do you think you don't need the rest of us? That you can get along by yourself out there in the world as a disembodied finger or eyeball or kidney? Of course not. That's ludicrous. No, God has designed arranged us in the body as he sovereignly chose. Okay, keep reading. Verse 22. On the contrary, yes, we need each other. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those par- on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the members, to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that all the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Friends, you see here that Jesus' intention is for you, as a member of his body, to care for and be cared for the other members. Which means that you need, you really need the church. Because it's through the church that Jesus intends to provide his loving care for you. And if that's true, and it is true, then you and I need to lean in to his church. Let's take a look through Scripture at the many different ways that Jesus shepherds us through his church. So here's what I'm maintaining. Jesus, our great good shepherd, is planning on shepherding us, and he does it by means of the church. How does he do it? Through the church, Jesus provides for your needs by, number one, teaching and instructing you in the gospel. Duty of a shepherd. To feed his sheep. And what food do Christ's sheep need? Well, as BJ showed us a couple weeks ago from 1 Peter 1, our food is the word of God. Particularly the word of the gospel. And Jesus knows that you need to be taught the word and instructed in the gospel and its implications. You need to be taught. You need to be fed. And Jesus has provided for you. How has he done this? By providing teachers, by giving teachers to his church. I wonder if you remember after Jesus' resurrection. He's on the beach with the apostle Peter. He's restoring him to leadership and to service. And he, what does he say to him? He says, feed my sheep. See, Jesus knew that he was going to the Father. He knew that the sheep would need feeding while he was away for this little while. The sheep would need feeding. And so he says, Peter, this is the work that I want you to give yourself to while I'm gone. See, the good shepherd appoints, he appoints under shepherds so that his sheep will be fed. Ephesians 4.11 says the same. He gave, 
Jesus gave, after his ascension, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And notice what's true of all four of those offices. Their primary function is to declare the word of God. That was his main, those were his chief gifts. He gave the gifts so that the church would, be, would have within it those who can declare to them the word of God. And so we have the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. That was the foundation of the church. And now evangelists and pastors and teachers continue on that work of feeding Christ's sheep. Which is why Paul says that an elder needs to be able or apt to teach. And that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. So what does all this mean in practical terms for you? It means you actually need to treasure the preaching and teaching ministry of our church. Not because BJ and I are the best teachers. We aren't. But because this ministry is how Jesus intends to feed you. Jesus' plan is that your primary diet of gospel instruction should come from your own pastors who know you and love you. Obviously, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, Sinclair Ferguson, they're better preachers. But he has not charged them to feed you. He has not committed you to their care, but to, but to ours. We have the charge that he has given to us. We who are responsible and who will stand before God and give an account for your souls. We're the ones with the vested interest. It's like the fact that, you know, you have a primary care physician. And your primary care physician actually knows your situation. A specialist might, need, might be often helpful for consulting. But at the end of the day, who knows you? It's your own doctor. Who's able to provide that care? Your own doctor. In the same way, your own pastor. So pray for us. Pray for us that we would be workers who have no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Be like the noble Bereans. Search the scriptures to see if what we say is true. But I would also say, as you sit under our preaching, give us your trust rather than your suspicion. First be learners and not critics. Because, you know, believe it or not, our study and our training, while it certainly does not make us infallible, does mean that we have advantages in interpreting God's word. And on top of that, BJ and I, with fear and trembling, understand that we have a gifting and a responsibility and an authority to teach that has been recognized by the church of God. And we know that we will be held accountable by God for a stricter judgment because we are teachers. So pray for us when we open up God's word for you and be eager to feed on the gospel of Christ as you are taught it. And by the way, in this age of the internet, I should say this also. With a click of a mouse, with a swipe of your phone, you have access to a mind-boggling 
gospel teaching. And lots of it is good. And lots of it is garbage. And I'd appeal to you, ask your pastors, ask your elders to guide you to resources that are true and helpful. It's part of our responsibility as under-shepherds to help you distinguish between between sound doctrine and false teaching, or even just teaching that just isn't going to be as helpful to you. Let us help. We don't want you consuming trash. Goats consume trash, right? We're sheep. You're sheep. Jesus wants you grazing in the green pastures. I so appreciated, for example, when one of the brothers reached out to me recently, he asked me if I knew anything about an apologetics book he was thinking of getting. Now, as it turned out, I hadn't heard of this particular book, but I did a little digging, and I helped him, tried to help him vet it. That was a good instinct on his part. He sought counsel from his pastor to try and see if this was a good resource or not. Because there's so much out there. How are you gonna, how are you gonna sift it all out? Well, that's part of our job to help you do that. In summary, Jesus wants to feed you with the word, and he wants to do it through the local church. Rejoice, therefore, because he's given it to you. Eat and be satisfied. All right, number two. Through the church, Jesus shepherds you with his protection, his accountability, and his discipline. So second significant responsibility that the shepherd has in defending the sheep and is to prevent them from going astray. Now, brothers and sisters, we just have to... to be humble enough to recognize that this is so and that we need this. Because one of the things that sheep are known for is their tendency to go astray. And Jesus has established some safeguards for us. And what do you know? They're to be found within his church. Now, what I'm about to say presumes that if you're a Christian, that you're in or you're working toward getting in to a covenant relationship with a particular local church. You're a member, you're a member or you're seeking to be a member, in other words, of a particular local church. And you've said, this is my church body. I'm committing myself to these believers, to these shepherds. I'm binding myself to this particular group of believers. Now, with that as a given, and assuming that's true of you, then a primary safeguard for you is this. That Jesus has given his under-shepherds, this is scary, in our day and age this is scary, he has given his under-shepherds actual authority over you, which they are to use with gentleness to keep you from straying. 1 Peter 5, 1-5 Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So I hope you see that the elder's task is to exercise oversight over God's flock. Now pair that instruction to elders with this command to the congregation in Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grumbling, for this would be with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, what does this practically mean? Well, it means that if you're a member of Redeeming Grace Church, it means that our elders collectively, as a group, not as individuals, can and in fact must direct you, call you, even command you to follow Jesus faithfully. And if we watch you, as under-shepherds, if we watch you going astray from Christ, he's going to hold us responsible to take appropriate steps to bring you back. That might take different forms depending on the situation. Maybe it's a gentle admonishment. Maybe it's a concerned warning. Maybe even a stern reproof. Because the more intent a wayward sheep is in going its own way, the more drastic are the means that the shepherd has to take to bring them back in the way. And of course, if you refused to heed admonishments and reproof, then Jesus allows the ante to get, up, get, get upped. And so in obedience to Matthew 18, the elders would eventually need to take matters to the whole church body. And the church would call you to repentance. And if you still refuse to listen, we would, as a church, in sorrow, remove you from our covenant community. That is the end game of this process, if it doesn't go well. Because we could no longer honestly endorse your profession as a follower of Christ because of your entrenched lack of repentance. There is, a, there is an end game. Now, this is getting a little heavy, huh? But it's very important that you see the intense love of Jesus in it. The intense love of Jesus is mediated to you in the church's shepherding. Because this is truly what's best for us. If you think about it, this is truly what's in your best interest. I'm so glad, I'm so glad that I'm in a church that loves me enough that it would tell me if I started going off the rails. That if I was stubbornly pursuing sin, you would not just let me go my own way, you would fight for my soul. You would plead with me to return in obedience to my Savior. You would not simply let me do whatever I wanted, which might end in my destruction. You would fight for me. That's the love of Jesus, friends. What does Jesus do when he sees the one sheep going astray? He leaves the 99, goes pursue it, brings it home. And so do the under-shepherds that he's designated. You know, I had one very sweet membership interview with a couple. I was talking about the, the covenant relationship that they were seeking to enter into by coming into membership. I said something like this. You know what? This means we're actually committed to you. We are committed to loving you. Really committed to loving you. And we will be committed, therefore, to disciplining you if you need it. And you should actually want that. Because we're going to do what is needed to help you on to heaven. And one of the, one of the couples says, yeah, that's relieving, actually. I mean, who else in our lives is going to commit ourselves to helping us get to heaven? And I said, that's right! 
That's exactly right. That's how you should feel. Because the Jesus church acting on his behalf will make that commitment. Will love you in that way. Now what I've just said presumes a healthy church with godly elders who do not abuse the authority that God's given them. And the mere fact that there are unhealthy churches out there with ungodly elders who do abuse their authority does not negate the pattern that God has laid out for us in Scripture. Just like with parents, the fact that abusive parents exist does not negate God's command that children must obey and submit to their parents. And in the same way, God calls you to be in submission and obedience to the leaders of a local church and to the discipline of the whole congregation. All right, moving on to number three. Jesus cares for you through the church by surrounding you with the love of an eternal family. See, when you join yourselves to Jesus Christ by faith, you don't just enter a relationship with him alone. You're now in a relationship with everybody else that's joined to him. We're all family now. All of us sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And we actually anticipate spending eternity together. You can't get away from me. You don't get to choose family, do you? You're stuck with me. What does this mean practically? Well, realistically, we have to scale things down a bit. Our entire church family is vast and worldwide. We simply can't know them all and practice preferential love to every Christian out there. However, we are gathered here in a particular local congregation and bound together to form one special outpost of the universal church. We are Jesus' people, regularly meeting regularly gathering in this place under the word of God and shepherded by particular shepherds and committed to loving one another. So there's a particular covenant relationship that we share with the saints here. And our preferential love is to be given here. That means you're enveloped in a great big community of family love. You have brothers and sisters who care about you, who want to know you, who want to share with you your burdens, who want to share with you your joys. They want to be helpful to you and cheer you on to do whatever they can to help you in your race of faith. And they want you to do that for them also. So, let's let each other in. Let's obey all those wonderful one another commands that the scripture gives us, be devoted to one another. Build one another up. Accept one another. Bear one another's burdens. Look to the interests of one another. And and I would say that I think we have a pretty lovely culture of that here at RGC. We do love each other. We usually even like each other. And that's fantastic. But there's, a, there's another side I would ask you to consider. Are we intent on building a culture of mutual discipleship here at RGC? So consider these other one another commands. Admonish one another. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another. 
These are more uncomfortable one another's. I'd argue this is taking things to another level. In, in Romans 5, but see, Jesus has equipped us for this. In Romans 5, Paul, 15, I should say, Paul says, Concerning you, my brothers, I am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. How do you feel about your responsibility to admonish? I feel comfortable to you? Uncomfortable? You're like, ugh. Are we in one another's spiritual lives? And I don't just mean the elders here. I mean the family. He's talking to the church. The brothers and sisters, are we in one another's spiritual lives? Not meddling, not being busybodies. That's different. We're speaking the gospel word to one another. We're helping each other grow along in holiness and devotion to Jesus. Which, yes, means vulnerability. It takes trust. It takes honesty. It takes believing that the other person is actually for you, and you have to actually be for the other person. Are we ready to lean in more with one another this year in loving each other like this? Start small. Here's my suggestion. Identify one way that you're going to start engaging more substantively with your home group and with the people in it. What's one way you can engage more substantively with your home group and its people? All right, number four. Let's look at how Jesus cares for you through the church by giving you practical help and counsel. So the Apostle John says, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and truth. Which means our love needs to be tangible. We must be the hands and feet of Jesus serving one another's needs. Do you believe that the church wants to be practically helpful to you? Would you ask for help if you needed it? Would you trust your leaders to help you work out a plan that can actually be helpful to you? So your brothers and sisters want to love you indeed. But now let's look at how Jesus provides you with practical counsel and wisdom through the church. Because let's face it, none of us are as wise as we would wish to be. So not, we're not as savvy in managing our lives as we want. So we need one another's wisdom within the church. We need the wisdom of God. And again, that's found through his people who are operating in his word. Life is hard. We don't always see clearly what to do, do we? So here's a thought. Thought. If you're really stuck... If you're spinning your wheels in some area of your life, marriage, parenting, life management, managing your emotions, dealing with besetting sin. If you're, if you're just grinding gears, spinning your wheels, why not try actually asking for counsel from wise friends within the church body? Godly friends who you're pretty sure are ahead of you in this particular area. Now let's take it one step further, because it's one thing to ask for help, ask for counsel. Why not decide that you're actually going to try out their counsel, even if you're not 100% sure about it? Like maybe you aren't convinced that it'll work. Now I'm not suggesting that you need to abdicate your responsibility to make good choices, 
You're still responsible before God for your choices. But hey, if you're really stuck, really that stuck, maybe you need to mistrust your own judgment. Have you thought of that? So why not trust the judgment of your wiser, godly friend? Get a second opinion if you like, no problem there. But once you've consulted some godly saints and you're pretty sure that they know more than you about the subject, then believe that Jesus can give you better counsel than your own heart can through his church. Because after all, the way that has seemed right to you is getting you nowhere fast. So rely on the godly wisdom of your brothers and sisters. All right. Number five. Another way Jesus exercises loving care for you is by washing and feeding you through the ordinances. Because, friends, you need baptism and you need the Lord's table. When a new believer is baptized, it's not just an individual matter between him and the Lord. No, 1 Corinthians 12, we already read it, says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So by faith, God's spirit incorporates, or if you like, immerses, the believer into the body of Christ, into the community of God's people. We're not just baptized into water, we're baptized into the body. And so water baptism is therefore properly administered within the context of the church, the covenant community. It marks you as having been washed by Christ and brought in to the family. That's why, incidentally, dads shouldn't just baptize kids privately in a backyard pool. Baptism is a community ordinance. It's a public declaration that this person is in the family of God. And then consider the Lord's table. Whereas baptism is all about your entrance into the community of faith, the table is all about keeping you in the community of faith. What happens when we come to the table? Well, lots of things, actually. Jesus invites us to come and remember his sacrifice his body and his blood, which was torn and poured out for you. Our bodies eat and drink the symbols of Jesus' death. And as we do that, our hearts feed on Christ by faith. And he nourishes and strengthens our faith as we remember what he's done for us. And that's all wonderful, but there's even more blessing to be had at the table. Because we do commune with Jesus at the table, but we also commune with one another. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body and for we all partake of the one bread. This means that when we come to the table, our participation in the one bread showcases that we are all one body. We're in communion with Jesus. We're also in communion with one another. And Jesus brings us all together for a family meal, and we celebrate the feast together, sharing in him with one another in love. And we do it as a whole body, which is, again, why we don't take communion privately as families or as scattered home groups. We take together as one local body of believers. It's also why we ought to ask ourselves when we come to the table, and we come every week, 
we ought to ask ourselves, is there anyone here in the body at RGC that I am not reconciled with? And if there is, we ought to come resolving to be reconciled with them as soon as possible. Because you're coming together to Jesus' table to share in him with one another. We can't be at odds with one another. Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians strongly for that. So we see that our good shepherd has given these two ordinances to the church, which we need to care for us by washing us and feeding us in communion with one another. All right, number six, moving along. If you weren't careful, you might get to this stage and think, okay, all right, I got it. Jesus is shepherding me through the church, so the church means, that means the church is here for me, for my benefit, and to serve my needs. Yes, that's certainly true. It's just not the whole truth. Because through the church, Jesus also gives you a mission and a team. You've actually got responsibilities here. That's a good thing for you. Jesus, when he left, gave his church marching orders. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is the church's mission. And if you're in Christ, it's actually your mission too. That's what your life is to be about. You're to participate in that glorious worldwide effort of seeing the image of God through Jesus Christ in the gospel go all throughout the world. And it's the church that helps you frame your life so that you stay on mission and don't get distracted. See, if Redeeming Grace Church is rightly oriented, if we've got our, our hull pointed toward the, 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 the North Star of making disciples of Jesus... RGC is pointed right, and then if I align my life to what's going on here, I will be helped to stay on mission. I'll end up engaged in the work that Jesus has called me to. Because my brothers and sisters here, who are all laboring together, all moving in the same direction, trying to see Christ's kingdom built, if I'm linking arms with them, it's going to help keep me on task. And I'm going to end up spending my energy not on things that don't matter. I'm going to end up spending my energy on things that are going to matter throughout eternity. And I'll be helped not to get distracted and forget that my life's purpose is to bring glory to my Savior. And help others come to follow him. And in the same way, the church also gives me a context in which to serve God's people. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he, that Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, where do we primarily get to be involved in the hard, good, often messy work of laying down our lives and our preferences and our agendas to serve other believers? It's in the church. We are here for you as Jesus intends that we be. You are here for us, as Jesus intends you to be. This is a reciprocal arrangement. We lay our lives down for each other in love. So please don't, don't as so many do, be users of God's church 
as if you and your family are customers shopping around trying to be satisfied. That is not how to view the church. Oh, look, the church is to provide all these things for me. Well, that's not untrue, but guess what? You're part of the mix, which means you're to be these things for other people, even when it's inconvenient or challenging or even unpleasant. When my father was declining due to his advancing Alzheimer's, I wasn't at our church yet. I was still serving at East Randolph. But I would, I, I would hear, and I remember how Martin... And Jeff and Dean and probably others of you would come over to the house and relieve my mom so that she could have some time off or go to some appointments. And they would just be there with Dad. I can't imagine it was super fun for them. He was hardly talking by that time, mostly just sitting in his chair. But they didn't care. They loved him. They loved my mom because they loved Jesus. And so they were intent to lay down their lives, even for the least of these, his brothers. Even if it wasn't the most pleasant way to spend an afternoon. That's something that Jesus gifts to you through the church. A context for serving in ways like that. Lastly, keeping your hope fixed on his return. Finally, Jesus loves us through the church by keeping our hope fixed on his return. Because this idea of hope being refined, hope purified through the church, that that doesn't necessarily seem intuitive, but it just kept cropping up in my mind this week. Because here's the reality. We're constantly tempted in one of two directions. We either get real comfortable with this world and we start setting our hope on the things of this world. Or else we get so troubled and so uncomfortable with the troubles and worries of this life that we start losing hope and we start despairing. But we have to reject both of those temptations. We have hope. We have a deep and abiding hope. Hope that can truly anchor us through the joys and trials of life. But it's hope in a future day. 1 Peter 1.13 says, and it says it to saints that are going through significant trials, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have to keep looking up. We have to be, keep expectant and waiting and longing for, not the next vacation, but for the return of Jesus Christ. That's where all our ultimate good is to be found when the kingdom comes in its fullness and death and sin are put away for all time. And it's the church that helps us keep our hope fixed on heaven. How does it do that? Well, our, our church, for one, is a little picture of heaven, right? It's a little glimpse, a little foretaste of the great community of love that we will have when we get there. So it pictures heaven to us. We help one another on to heaven so it strengthens and keeps our hope alive that we're going to get there and we, we keep directing each other's gaze up. We keep telling one another, hey, hold on, Jesus is coming for us, right? Remember, Jesus is coming for us. We keep each other expectant and as we do this, we're protecting one another. We're protecting one another from despair And we're also protecting one another from being complacent and satisfied with this world. 
God uses the church to purify our hope, keeping us hoping on his return because Jesus is coming back. And he's going to renew all things then. Not now, then. So whatever you're faced with today, that is your great hope. All right, where does this leave us? It leaves us with this challenge. As I've said, you really need the church because it's through the church that Jesus intends to provide his loving care for you. So the challenge is to lean in. How would you do that? Well, first you need to lean in by actually recognizing that the church is Jesus' good plan for you. The church was his idea. He designed it for your good that he might shepherd you by it. So again, that means it's not his will that you try to do the Christian thing on your own, just you and your personal relationship with Jesus. He doesn't want you doing this alone. He didn't plan for you to do this alone. You need a family. You need a community that's committed to you and you're committed to them. And so the first step is just to believe that that's true because it's what the Bible says, that the church is what God wants for you. And you know what? It doesn't really matter if you feel like that's true or not. It's what God's word says. Believe it. And second, you lean in by making choices that reflect that you know that you need the church. This is where the rubber hits the road. Because we can say we need the church all we want. We can think that we know we need it. But at the end of the day, we've been so affected by our individualistic, independent, anti-authority culture that when the chips are down, we struggle to actually act as if the church should factor into our day-to-day decisions. We're so tempted to take our marbles and go home. Some of you maybe remember that in a sermon a while back, I gave the illustration of a wheel and its hub. Right? I said all the different activities and priorities in your life are like the spokes on a wheel. And all those spokes revolve around a central hub. Something that's fixed and that's at the center of your life. I told you then that the church should be your hub. Everything else in your life should revolve around the church. Now some of you came up for air a little bit. They said, shouldn't Jesus be the hub? Well, that's a great question and the answer is yes. But I'm arguing that your relationship with Jesus is inseparable from your relationship with his church because it's his body. It's his bride. You can't actually have Jesus at the center without having his church there at the center. As you serve his people, you serve him. As you're fed by the church's teaching of the gospel, you're fed by him. As you love and are loved by his people, you love and are loved by him. We're inseparable. So the way to have Jesus at the center of your life practically looks like having his church at the center. So let it be so in your life and in the life of your household. What are choices you can make that reflect that you know you need the church? Well, Let's start basic. How about joining it as a member? Enter into covenant partnership with this congregation so that you can enjoy the full benefits of being part of our body with all the shepherding that Jesus wants to provide you 
through it. All the feeding, all the protection, all the love. How about prioritizing its gathering? Like, look at your calendar. What's written in black Sharpie on your calendar? Lots of things on our calendars have to be, have to be written in washable marker, right? But Sunday morning ought to be in Sharpie. It should take the extraordinary, the truly extraordinary circumstance to keep you away from the gathering of God's people under his word. How about regularly seeking counsel from godly friends and especially your elders? And then actually giving that counsel a true and full hearing. I'm thinking especially if you're faced with a big life decision, like a job change or a possible relocation, college choices, initiating a romantic relationship, making some big commitment of time or finances. Are you, are you running those, those decisions by BJ or one of the other elders? Not because you need elder sign-off. Not because they know perfectly what God's will for you is. Of course that's not true. We're not a cult. But won't you let your shepherds in to help you think through the spiritual ramifications of the different choices that you have before you? Be willing to listen if they feel that some options wouldn't be best for your soul for some reason. Discuss with them how your decision would affect your ability to serve Christ's kingdom. Be willing to hear their recommendation. How about this? When a brother or sister comes to you, whether they do it with all tact and graciousness or not, and they say, you know, I'm noticing a pattern in your life, and it feels a little troubling. I wonder, could we talk about it? Right? They're getting into a position to admonish. Are you willing at that moment to hear them out? Even, yes, they might be wrong. But, but they might be right. Are you willing to not get defensive when your brother admonishes you? Because that's what Jesus has called him to do. And this may well be Jesus ministering his grace to you through your brother. How about this? How about having as your default orientation? When some situation arises in your life and you're in need, you realize, gosh, I'm in need that you would ask, how would Jesus want to provide for me in this situation using his church? Because, friends, Jesus loves you. The Bible tells you so. It also tells you that his love for you is mediated through the church. Now, finally, what if you're not a Christian? What if you're not a Christian? I hope you haven't just... Tune me out thinking that none of this is relevant to you, because it really is relevant. Here are some thoughts for, for you to think about. Don't be complacent. Don't be complacent as if you're already a part of Jesus' church just because you attend. So some of you are here with us regularly. We're so glad that you're here. And some of you have been around God's people your whole life. And it seems that you enjoy many of the benefits that Jesus offers through the church's ministry. You're loved by us. You're taught God's word. We would offer support and counsel and practical help to you if you needed it. 
but, but don't be deceived or lulled. You are not yet actually part of the body. Even though you sit here amongst us, even week after week, you are still outside the household of God. You're still outside the family, looking in through the screen door. The most visibly obvious sign of this is that you're not able to come to the table. And that should be, that should be significant for you. That should trouble you. See, don't be lulled into thinking that all is well with you when it's not. You sit among God's people, but actually the wrath of God still rests on you because of your sins. And the only way to join this family and to truly access the full-orbed love of Jesus is by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus. Acknowledging that there's nothing good in you, nothing but sin. Acknowledging that you need the righteousness that can only be found in him. And then calling out for it. And claiming it for yourself on the basis of the fact that he gave his body and his blood for sinners just like you. On that basis, you can go to him in faith and believe it's for you. Believe him. Trust him. Turn from your sins. Ask him to be your shepherd. Commit yourself to following him. That's how you become part of the family. And if you are seeking him and you haven't yet found him, while you wait, while you wait, let all the love and the truth that surrounds you whet your appetite for everything that you're missing. That you may hunger for it and seek it all the more earnestly. And then I'd say to you still, lean in, take full advantage of the ministries of the church because this is where the means of saving grace is to be found primarily. The church is the place of God's blessing. The church is the place where his word can open your eyes to the truth. Where God's spirit is at work, we believe, in a special way because he's present in the gathering of his people. I've said it before, I'll probably say it again. If you want to get hit by a Mack truck, go stand out in the middle of I-89. You want to be savingly hit by the Spirit of God and by the grace of Jesus? Come among his people. Take heed to the word of God. Pray for grace. And may the Lord bring you to himself soon so that you too can know the love of Jesus and experience his blessing through his church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're so conditioned to think individualistically. We're so conditioned not to think that you minister to us through your people. Lord, help us to realign. Help us to really believe that the church is for us and that we ought to be leaning in. Oh, God, help us. We thank you for these things. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name. Amen.